The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sam. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian, Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. The Tom Sumner Program is made possible with support from Seth David Radwell, a recent guest on the program and author of American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold a Secret to Healing Our Nation, released in July 2021. As Publishers Weekly writes in its recent glowing review of American Schism, business executive Radwell's epic debut examines the historical influences that have led to what he sees as the collapse of politics in the United States. Seth Radwell makes the case that the current chasm between the American right and left can be traced back to the 18th century's Age of Enlightenment and the basic tenets of liberty, equality, and reason. American Schism provides a historical perspective that can help bridge current day divides. American Schism by Seth David Radwell is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. For more information, go to americanschismbook.com. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, uh, everybody. This is the second hour of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour, we're going to shift gears a little bit and talk about equity, inclusion, uh, diversity, and so on with the author of a new book called Equity, How to Design Organizations Where Everyone Thrives. And her name is um, Minnell Bopaya, and she joins me by phone. Hi, Minnell. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. And thanks for teaching me how to say your name, because I'm terrible with names, Mental. That's okay. <laughs> That's my, my whole life is giving people mnemonics for that. <laughs> I, I bet. I bet. Um, but uh, what about the the um, the idea of, of designing organizations where everyone thrives? That is kind of a popular theme lately, and I've talked to several people who have tried to tackle it. But how does how do you how do you propose it in such a way that people act on it and not just talk about doing it? Yeah, yeah, right. That's that's what it comes down to is actions, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and so I mean, in the book, we sort of we we talk about that because that that was really why I wrote the book. You know, my husband 
is a firefighter, which is a very action-oriented uh, profession. And, um, you know, he will probably never want to have a one-hour conversation with me about gender fluidity, but he also did all of the housework and did all of the errands while I was writing the book. So, um, you know, actions do speak so, louder than words. So he isn't yeah. just a hero because he's a firefighter. No, I think he's more <laughs> of a hero because he's a feminist. <laughs> um and so we talk about in the book how leaders can operationalize diversity, equity, and inclusion and really ask for concrete, observable behaviors in order to scale it. Now, there is some sort of thing, you know, some prep work we have to do with sort of shifting mindsets a little bit, at least in leadership. But I think the more we operationalize what we mean and what behaviors we want to see that are really indicative that you're acting in an inclusive and equitable manner, um, the easier it's going to be for people to opt into this. But so often um, we see in organizations um, an attempt at the board level to include some people mm-hmm. um, from from different backgrounds, whether it's mm-hmm. it's women or African Americans or Asians, and and then um, they might put some you know hiring policies in place. Mm-hmm. People get hired and then just sit where they are. There isn't any mm-hmm. sense that they're actually taking part. In, yeah. in in reaching their full potential in those organizations. Yeah. So this is why we talk about really designing the organization. So what everybody gets at is the system. So I'm less interested in the interpersonal dynamics on some level than I am in the system. And the system actually makes it very hard. The system has already been de- designed in such a way that Um, leads to exclusion and separation and dominance, right? And so we want to redesign the system with an equity lens so that everybody has a fair shot. And so that means rethinking some of the things that we may take as gospel, right? So, for example, you know, most organizations were, you know, born, well, most workplaces, the the idea of work as we know it now, particularly white-collar work, was really scaled in the 1950s when organizations were designed for mainly um, white, straight white men in heterosexual marriages who were able-bodied, who would commute from the suburbs and then go home to a healthy home-cooked meal prepared by somebody else. They, most of them had wives who were picking up all of the emotional and cognitive labor of running a household for free. And you were able to have one income and buy a house and send your kids to college and save for retirement. That reality does not exist anymore, even for a lot of straight white men. And it really didn't last very long. No, right? And so what do we do if we were to actually put the, like, if we were to put people who have been on the margins of that design in the center and design for them, what if we were to design an organization? Because right now we have women. First of all, you need practically two incomes to be have a middle class life. And then women are still continuing to bear um, the lion's share of the emotional and cognitive labor of running a household. And at the same time, men are so expected to overwork. This idea of masculinity is so tied to work and money 
that men are cutting themselves off from the emotional benefits of caretaking and being fathers and being connected both like to their family and to their community. So we need to redesign work for a two-person household or even a single-person household um, that allows people to still be connected and manage the, the, the labor that's involved in running a household and building a community, right? And so if we were to take people who were left on the margins of that original design and put them in the center, we would probably come up with a design that would not only be innovative, but would benefit actually all of us. And what would that design look like? Would it would it be the same old flow chart, but with different people in the boxes? I don't think so. I think it would vary according to industry and organization. You know, like I don't think there's one size fits all. And I think that's the sort of thinking we have to get away from is this idea that there's just an optimized way of doing everything that works for everybody. I think we have to embrace difference when we talk about diversity and that different organizations need different solutions. But one of the analogies that I really like, um, which is by Adrienne Marie Brown in her book, Emergent Strategies, and also Edgar Villanueva talks about it in his book, Decolonizing Wealth, is this idea of like a flock of birds, right? When, when you see birds migrating, they're very attuned to one another. And, you know, when one lifts, they know, the rest of them know they need to start to lift. When one turns, the rest of them know they have to start to turn. But they also know that they have to keep space between one another, right? And so it's this idea of, like, sovereignty that you are entitled to your own space and to make decisions that are in your best interest, but also interdependence that your decisions then affect the entire whole as well. So it's not a command and control in terms of getting everybody on board with decisions that are going to, you know, like we're all going to decide together to do these like things, but understanding that you as an individual have a responsibility both to yourself and to your community that you're working with. And this idea of like a flock of birds is more of a horizontal, you know, it's a horizontal path where, um, you know, people get to opt in, and then they can also divert if they want to, it's, right? It's interesting that you say that. Although I'm, um, I'm, I'm struggling a little bit with the bird analogy because usually it's all one type of bird. Um, <laughs> and and I, I did a little experiment once with um, with a top down organizational chart, mm-hmm. and I turned it clockwise. 90 degrees mm-hmm. and it became an arrow mm. and so it had that that same that same visual that you're talking about about being yeah. horizontal and it was everybody working in the same direction and didn't have that sense of top down mm-hmm. and and I, I I think there's uh there's some truth to that but what I'm still, you know, wanting to to push and talk about how we how we get these structures Mm -hmm. to be inclusive. Yeah. So while we want to have a more horizontal organization, at the same time, the DEI is fundamentally a change initiative, and so. For any change management process, most people who are schooled in it will tell you that you have to start with leadership buy-in, 
So it's absolutely fundamental and critical that we start with leadership. Um, organizations are a bit different than democracies in that um, you don't get to vote out your CEO, right? And that doesn't mean that the organization can't be more democratic or inclusive, but what we're talking about when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion is really how does power move in this organization? How is it used? How does it move? Who has it? Who doesn't have it? How can we allow everyone to be empowered um, in what they do while understanding that people are going to have differing levels of power based on um, their role and the amount of responsibility that they're taking on? And so you have to start with leadership and having them be engaged and understanding what it what equity really means. An equitable leader is not afraid of difference. They embrace difference and they understand that we need to leverage difference in order to be more innovative and creative. They also understand that you need to present a vision or a shared purpose to everyone working in the organization so that there is some alignment, right? Yeah. And then an, and an equitable leader also is able to see the system. And, the, and that gets us out of um, just talking about DEI on an interpersonal level, but really talking about it at a systems level. You know, like, w we need to understand that this sort of Horatio Alger tale that we tell in America about if you just work hard enough, you'll <laughs> get ahead, is one, is fundamentally flawed, Two, what happens is that people then assume that the corollary is also true when it's not, which means that people assume that if you're not successful, then you haven't worked hard enough, which is absolutely not true, right? So if we were to be scientific or Any small business it, owner will tell you that. Yeah. So then <laughs> what is it that actually leads to success, right? It's hard work plus something else. Right. And so I talk about, you know, I opened up by talking about how I wrote this book because, you know, because of my husband, but also because he was also supportive, you know, to be a woman running a small business and writing a book. The reason I was able to do that in a pandemic is because I don't have any children and I don't do housework. Most women don't have that privilege. Most men do, at least in terms of not having to do housework and they don't do the majority of child rearing. And so when we talk about success, it's really important for me to say that those two factors also contributed to my success. And when I'm able to say that, what I do is I then unmask the system for other people, for people who may have been working so hard and struggling to understand why they're not getting ahead. I'm able to say, here are the other conditions that were in place for my success. How can we create those conditions for you? Or if you do choose to have children, how can we create conditions that still allow you to have children and still be successful? Minnell, right. I have to take a short break here. Can you stick around so we can talk about this some more? Absolutely. All right. We'll break for just a couple of minutes. We'll let our uh, broadcast partners at 92.1 LPFM in Flint squeeze in a few words or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com. We have some messages as well, and then we'll return to talk more about equity with the author of uh, this new book, um, Minnell Bopaya. So don't touch that dial, don't click that mouse. More with Minnell right after this. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can. Keep wearing masks correctly and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place where you never get harmed, a magical place with magical charms, indoors, indoors, indoors. 
Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we continue our conversation about a new book called Equity, How to Design Organizations Where Everyone Thrives by author Minnell Bopaya, who uh, joins me by phone. Minnell, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Sorry to make you sit through all that. No, not at all, Tom. Thank you for having me. Um, we were talking about uh, getting to leaders of companies and, and getting them to uh, see the companies and the people in their companies differently. Um, how do you do that with people who are extremely committed to the mission of an organization, whether it be uh, uh, you know, product quality and, uh, mm-hmm. and the bottom line? Yeah, um well, it depends. So it depends what you're asking here, right? Well, I, I can just, I can just, I can just hear some, you know, crusty old white yeah. guy like me yeah. saying, "Well, you know, my job isn't to solve everybody's problems. My job is to make really good widgets and get the most money I can for them for my board of directors." Yeah, so, and and it's I mean, hard to and hard to break them away from that. It's it's yeah, you know, it's ingrained. It's their it's their mission in life is to do those two things. Yeah, I mean that way of thinking um, fundamentally fundamentally needs to be interrogated. I don't believe that if you think like that, you are going to be able to recruit great talent in the next in the next five years or the future. However, I will also say that I am the DEI consultant if your question is how do I do this, not if your question is why do I do this. Are we, seeing, are we seeing that inability to recruit talent playing itself out a little bit as we uh, begin to recover from the uh, COVID-19 yeah. pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think people are exhausted and burnt out. They're calling it the great resignation. I saw some tweet, and I don't know if this is true, I haven't fact-checked it, that there are something like 8 million Americans who are unemployed right now, but 10 million job openings. Um, And I don't think it's because people don't want to work. It's that people want a quality of life that allows them to have some balance, right? And they want to be um, remunerated for their efforts in a way that allows them to just have one job and be able to make rent and put food on the table. This sort of hustle, hustle, hustle culture I, is fundamentally unsustainable for a human being. And we have to understand that, you know, that is a form of exploitation. That is a form of oppression. And that if we want to really honor our own humanity, then we need to come, with, come up with models that, that where businesses are concerned with sustainability and benefiting both employees and customers. This model of unending growth is a pure fantasy. We have clearly run out of planet, right? Like there's just no more. And so we need an alternate economic model that allows, and an alternate business model that allows us to weigh multiple factors and multiple interests for humanity at the same time and not just worship at the altar of profit. Well, and during the uh, during the last year and a half plus, um, during the pandemic and 
all of the quarantine shelter at home you know recommendations and in some cases uh, mandates um, it's given people a chance to think about what they really want does that mm -hmm. make this an ideal time to create new environments that might be more appealing to these people that have have stepped back and taken a different look at work in america i i think so i think moments of crises or moments of uncertainty are great for sparking innovation and creativity if you have the courage to sit with uncertainty. If you're looking for security, then you're probably just going to fall into old patterns. You're going to fall into what you know. This ability to innovate and be creative takes a great deal of courage and a, and a great deal of comfort with uncertainty. How can existing um, organizations uh, restart and reinvent at the same time? Yeah. So um, this is sort of the, this is why um, this work can be complicated is because we're all sort of trying to put the wheels on the train as it's moving. Right. Well, um, but but we're we're sort of in limbo between mm -hmm. getting back to normal and and believing that there will be a new normal. Yeah. I mean, I think you have to sort of decide which one of those you want to aim for. Because if you're aiming for getting back to normal, then you're just going to fall into old patterns. Uh, if you're aiming for a new normal, then I think there's a chance for creativity and innovation and really designing something spectacular that will just take your breath away in how it will both benefit people and your own company, right? And so uh, if you have that sort of courage, then now is the time to flex it and use it and really start to think about, okay, how can we do this in a way that benefits the most people, both inside and outside the company? In writing this book, Mental, uh, did you did you have a particular audience in mind? Is there a profile of the people mm -hmm. that you would like to see this book in the hands of? Yeah, I mean, I, I really wrote it for people who are leaders. And that could be anything from people who are CEOs and leading companies or, or, or nonprofit organizations. Or it could be people who are leading teams or um or um, project managers or anybody who's trying to create more equity in the sphere in which they have some power. Is it easier to uh, embrace diversity and inclusion from the ground up or can it be done with institutions? Oh, I think it has to be done with institutions. I don't think it can, I don't actually think it will succeed if it's only ground up. I, and, and this is what we talk about, right? Like when we talk about systemic racism, we're talking about the racism that occurs at the level of institutions and the system. We're not talking about the interpersonal racism that can exist. Right. And so it has to be that the solutions then are at the institutional level and at the systemic level. Um, 
grassroots organizing, I think, is wonderful and important and really important for our communities and for our democracy. So I'm not against it. But given the way that institutions are, are um, organized as is, where power really does flow from the top, and you don't, like, employees don't have the power of the vote in their organization, right, then it is absolutely critical that we start at the top of institutions and that we scale it across institutions and that institutions, you know, a lot of this work is also how, as an institution or as an organization, are you going to conduct business with other companies and organizations? We wrote a thought paper on how to hire a DEI consultant that really gets at this because... I was like, if you're... Minnell, I hate to interrupt, but what does DEI stand for, just to be sure people know? Sure. It stands for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Okay. Good enough. Yeah. And so we talked about how to hire a consultant for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, you know, if your contracting department or your supplier, your procurement office is only interested in getting the most bang for their buck, um, and squeezing the most work possible out of a vendor, you are already um, going against the fundamental understanding of equity, right? Um, which is about really honoring people for their work. And that doesn't mean um, spending extravagantly, but it means, you know, understanding that racial equity particularly is about getting money in the pockets of people of color because in a capitalist society, that's the only way for us to have any power. And so if you're really committed to equity and inclusion, then you need to examine your procurement and um, vendor supplier processes and make sure that you are treating your vendors in an equitable manner, that it is more of a partnership rather than, you know, owner and you know vendor who you're going to squeeze that it's not a power play instead it's two parties coming together with very different perspectives who can then co-create something really new and that serves everybody and so it's it's much more of a partnership mindset rather than an ownership mindset when you're committed to equity and inclusion in your business so there's more to consider than just whether or not a company is the lowest bidder yeah Absolutely. You mentioned uh, a, a little earlier, um, and and I know the statistic is not fact checked and so on, but mm-hmm. but roughly ten million jobs available mm-hmm. and eight million people out of work. Is this a wake up call for leaders, and and are they going to be able to recognize it? How do we get these kids together? So. <laughs> Do you know I, what I mean by that? Yeah, I don't. So, so here's the thing. Actually, we talk a lot in the book about um, talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And when we've done, you know, we have people on our staff who have done communications research, and what they have found is that actually, I I sort of did something bad there because they. They say when you want to talk about equity and inclusion, you should never talk about the disparities between two groups. Because if you do, our internal biases um, are so hardwired to attribute that difference to individual agency. And, And part of this is we have a bias in this country for rugged individualism. We really love to believe that we can just all be individuals and go it alone, and we can't. 
And because of that, whenever you talk about the disparities between two groups, like if you talk about how people of color might earn less money than white people, if we start there, people automatically attribute that to individual agency, meaning people of color are not working as hard, right? So when we, so I did something bad there because I talked about how many people are unemployed and how many jobs there are, which might, which people are going to automatically attribute to people are too lazy to get a job, which is not the case. And and that has been suggested in yeah. you know social media and other platforms, yeah. and. And it's entirely possible that all 10 million jobs are in healthcare, and not all 8 million people are interested in healthcare. Yeah, and so what we have to do if we want to be more effective in communicating this idea is start by showing people the system, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like, you know, we have to understand that we have an education system funded by property taxes which is very, very unique. Most countries, and I mean countries from India to Germany, have an education system that is funded by a general tax revenue and that is distributed per capita, not per neighborhood. So when you have that, you have a system where the rich get richer and the poor get poorer because basically people are buying their children's education via their home mortgage, right? Sure. And, and so then you have an education system that is completely anemic in educating large segments of the population, right? Sure. And then you also have labor practices that, um, you know, have been, that this idea of getting the most profit by keeping expenses down as much as possible has led to extreme labor abuse, such as not not even just like, minimum wage being under $15 an hour, but even things like the fact that we can pay people in service industries like waiters and waitresses two fifty an hour, right? And so that is not a livable wage. And people in a year where they face like their possible death or the death of their loved ones do not want to go for a job that doesn't allow them to live. And on top of it, we lost over half a million of our population, and many of those people who were exposed to the virus were essential workers. So we literally can't fill these jobs because people are dead, right? And so if we can start by showing, by talking about the system rather than talking about the numbers, right. then we can start to understand that, oh, there's places where this system is not working, and we got to fix these like cracks in the system, before we even start looking at the numbers. Well, let's let's do that then for a minute. What is human-centered design and sure. and what are behavior change principles and and what do those things look like in real life going forward? Yeah, so human-centered design is really about putting, you know, humans or uh, at the center of whatever we design. That instead of designing for profit maximization, we design for human experience. And we design for human experiences where people can actually feel like they are thriving and that they have meaning and purpose. Right? Um, and there's a whole process by which, by which we go through that. Um, you know, it requires a lot of empathy. And I talk in the book what empathy really is versus what we think it is. Um, and then behavior change science is about 
you know, the research we have found on how we actually change behavior. Unfortunately, we keep thinking that information changes people's minds. It does not. If information was enough for behavior change, everybody would floss every day and exercise three times a week and not have any credit card debt. <laughs> right. Right? We would be addressing climate change if information was enough. It is not. So we need to get at the other things that lead to behavior change, whether that's motivation or, um, you know, the system and how easy it is to engage in certain behaviors. How, how much so, of this requires a leap of faith, Mental? When you talk about, for example, humor, human-centered design, and you say, mm -hmm. don't think about the bottom line, think about the experience, um, mm -hmm. is, that almost sounds a little bit like saying, build it and they will come. So, I'm not saying you can't think about the bottom line. I'm saying that we have to balance human experience with financial solvency. Okay. So like, I, basically I do care about money. You're, you're balancing <laughs> uh, mission and margin there. Yeah. That like we have to figure out a way to be financially sustainable while benefiting the most people possible. And there is always a little bit of a give and take. Not every, you know, this is not, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion is not everybody gets to come with the wish, their wish list and everybody gets what they want. That's not what this is, right? right. We, like, it, particularly if you have an organization, we have to understand what is the mission and purpose of this organization? How do we accomplish that in a humane way that allows employees and customers to benefit and that ensures our sustainability by making sure that we're in the black, right? Mm -hmm. That, like, there is financial solvency and there is enough profit to invest in continuing research and, in, and innovation, right? That sure. is a very different mindset than saying we need to maximize profits at all costs. So, like, that's the sort of subtle shift. I'm not saying that you can't look at, you can't, that you wouldn't have a CFO, that you, and accounting isn't important, that you shouldn't be looking at your bottom line. But, you're, but to only look at your bottom line is sort of the equivalent of saying, if we're going to look at like the health of an individual that we're only going to look at height. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm like, well, well, no, it's on a, a basketball team, maybe that, that might be good for the, for scoring points, but that's not, that doesn't mean that that basketball team or even that individual is healthy because it has to be in relation to weight. Right. Like there's sure. a ratio. And so as companies, we have to start thinking in terms of ratio instead of like one number, right? Like instead sense. of just looking at revenue or profit margin, we have to look at like, well, how much, pro how much revenue did we have and how engaged are our employees and how happy are our customers? Again, the name of the book is Equity, How to Design Organizations Where Everyone Thrives by Minal Bopaya, who uh, is my guest this hour. Minal, um, obviously the book is a great place to start, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about what we've been talking about, diversity, uh, equity, and mm -hmm. inclusion. Yeah. So we have a website for the book called theequitybook.com. Um, we, you can find out more about the book. We also have an equity toolkit available there 
We also have something called Minnell's Bookshelf, which is like all the books who have, that have influenced me, which is actually my favorite part of the site because I love recommending books to people. Um, and then I am also the founder and principal at Brevity and Wit, which is uh, my company that is a strategy and design firm dedicated to designing a more equitable world. And you can find us there and find the many uh, wonderful people that I work with there who are just stellar. Uh, and learn more about the the type of work we do in organizations. Is there a difference between equity and equality? Yes. Yeah, there there is, and I talk about this in the book. There's an image in the book which I think does a really great job of showing it. But since we can't have visuals here, I'll is try that to the one with it. the boxes and the fence? Well, that's one of them. We actually have a different one that <laughs> okay. has um, from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation that has bicycles that I think does a better job. Okay. Um, but equality is when everyone gets the same thing. Equity is when people get what they need to contribute their strengths and participate fully. Equity doesn't fault people for being different. Instead, it leverages the difference so that everyone can thrive. So um, one of the ways to think about this is like when you are in, in school, if your child happens to have dyslexia, they might get more time with the teacher in order to be able to read at their level. That is a different resource available to a student because their needs are different compared to the rest of the students. Is there an organization that, that serves as a model for diversity, mm. equity, and inclusion? Hmm. That's a really good question. So um, there is a publication called Diversity Best Practices that gives out awards. And there is also an organization called the Forum for Workplace Inclusion that um, highlights a lot of organizations that are doing really wonderful things. I have had the um, pleasure of doing a lot of work in public media and particularly working with KUOW, which is in Seattle. Um, which is doing some wonderful stuff and, um, and, and really rethinking like how we, it, you know, how equity and inclusion informs content creation. Um, but I will also say that equity and inclusion is a little bit like safety, right? Like yeah. as a car manufacturer, you want to steward safety, but you never really get to a point where you're like, okay, we're done. Checklist is complete. We don't need to worry about safety anymore. Right? Because there are always new threats to safety and there will always be new threats to equity and inclusion. So the best organizations in my mind are not the people who um, can say, oh, we've hit every single benchmark, but the people who really embed equity and inclusion as a core business function in their organizations. Well, Minnell, we have to end it there, but thank you so much for spending this time with me, and uh, it's it's been a delight talking with you. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much, Tom. You have asked some really wonderful questions, and it was absolutely a delight to spend this morning with you as well. Take care. All right. Again, uh, Minnell... Uh, Minnell Bopaya is the author of Equity, How to Design Organizations Where Everyone Thrives, released in September of 2021. We're going to take a short break, and uh, we've got more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. 
Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. Objection. I object. I object to that, Your Honor. Oh, hi, Mom. What's up? Dana, what are you doing? Oh, you know, just um, Attorney General stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So listen, we just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam. Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, Report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dina, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. 
I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. much ladies and gentlemen fine fine welcome and it's certainly very gratifying to know that you feel this way and that you people have accepted my being able to sub for Johnny this week because it seems to have caused quite a bit of difficulty around here at NBC uh, earlier this evening I was in Johnny's dressing room and one of the wardrobe mistresses walked by and she sticks her head in the door she sees me and she says what are you doing in Johnny Carson's dressing room <laughs> If he catch you in here, this is the last time you're going to be on this show. <laughs> so I'm, I'm very glad. <laughs> I'm very glad that you feel that. We, we will, during the course of the week, find some way to overcome her problem and firmly convince her that NBC, without a doubt, has established within everyone's mind that it is the Full Color Network. <laughs> what? fun for me. It's this, this entire week is going to be fun. I've looked forward to it. And, uh, in fact, to stand here and act so cool. I'm excited. I'm not nervous. I'm excited. In the dressing room, I felt good. I was thinking, you know, just different ways of expressing the enthusiasm. And I was saying to myself, Woo! <laughs> well, it's made me think back. This is a long way from where I started. You know, I used to work in a drive-in movie. That's right, it was really rough. But it was fun. It was a hard job, but it was fun. I used to go around and shine the light in the car, tell people when the picture's over. <laughs> I got $25 a week and all I could see. <laughs> I'd walk around and say, the picture's over, the picture's over! <laughs> I tried a lot of things. I tried a lot of things. I feel that I'm prepared to assume the responsibility for well, this job, this is, well, this job is like, uh, I feel like this job is like being at a weenie roast with me being the weenie. <laughs> I just threw that in, you know? Like, uh, yes, yes. I, I tried a lot of things. You know, coming along, I, uh, during my younger years, I tried, uh, I operated my own business. It was a lemonade stand, you know? And uh, it was doing pretty good. It, the way it went is I had a big sign over the lemonade stand called Flip's Lemonade, all you can drink for a dime. Well, that was great, and it was going along pretty well, but then you always run into a wise guy, you know? One day a guy comes up to the stand, he says, uh, is this lemonade as good as everybody says it is? And I said, you better believe it, this lemonade is just as good as what your mother used to make. And the guy said, hmm, that gotta be some very good lemonade. <laughs> I said, and in addition to that, I give you all you can drink for a dime. Can't beat that. See, let me tell you how I fix this lemonade. I put extra sugar in the glass. So that when you turn the glass up to drink it, the lemonade starts swirling around and that makes the sugar swirl and lemonade gets sweeter as you go down. You know, as it goes down, makes it taste better. And uh, then the lemonade is very cold. I put extra ice in the pitcher and then I pack the pitcher in the ice. And I said, yeah, that's all right. He said, uh, give me a glass. So I gave him a glass and uh, he says, I'll have another glass. I said, well, that'll be another dime. 
He said, now hold on. He said, the sign says all you can drink for a dime. I said, but you had a glass, didn't you? And I said, yes. I said, well, that's all you can drink for a dime. <laughs> caught on to that pretty quick, so I, I kind of cut the lemonade business to loose, and I've worked toward tonight. And uh, during the course, now let me say, things are going to be a little different with Johnny not here. The whole purpose of the show is fun. We're going to try to have as much fun, you know, but other things will be different, such as uh, during the course of my opening spot, I'll eliminate Johnny's genuine, authentic golf swing. We won't have that this week. No, I wouldn't infringe upon the man's right to open, you know, that, that's not, that's his swing. You know, I swing another way. I got my own way of swing. <laughs> but uh, if, if Johnny's looking in tonight, I was thinking of some way. I don't play golf myself. Well, the ball is too small. If the ball was a little larger, I'd play. Uh, but in the elevator at the hotel I'm staying at, coming up on the elevator, I heard two guys discussing the game, and I thought it was a pretty amusing conversation. One fellow says to the other, he said, uh, say, George, he said, how's your golf game coming? John said, it's all right. It's all right. Fellow said, you should be pretty good. You and Freddie playing every other day. George said, look, he said, don't mention Freddie's name to me. He said, I don't want to talk about Freddie, you understand? So don't bring his name up to me. Fellow said, but you and Freddie are such good friends. You guys play golf every other day. George said, well, not anymore. So well, what happened? He said, look, he said, do you want to play with a guy who cheats on the score? Want to play with a guy who cheats? A guy who, if he makes a hole in one, he's going to take off two? Do you want to play with you want to play with a guy who, who steals your clubs while you're watching the ball because somebody's already got your bag? <laughs> so do you want to play with a guy who'll run through the clubhouse yelling "Burn, baby, burn"? <laughs> so do you want to play with a guy like that? And the fellow said, "Heck, no." He said, "Well, neither do Freddie." <laughs> This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. Things 
I'm Alexander Zonjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner.